As Christians, we know the story of the sufferings of Jesus, but could it be we're so familiar that we're no longer moved as we should be? This week's edition of The Land and the Book is not for the faint of heart. We'll ponder the agony of Jesus. Our guest is a medical doctor who helps us better understand the price that Jesus paid for our redemption. Join us now for The Land and the Book. Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host, is a Middle East expert and author. I'm John Geiger, and maybe you wonder what's the next event on God's prophetic timeline. Why is it important, and, and what does it mean for you? Well, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this issue. The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. Well, let's turn our attention now to something rather unique. This Easter Sunday weekend, we're turning from our regular current events to catch up on the latest insights into technology coming out of Amazing Israel, both positive and negative. Our first story is for coffee lovers, as the CEO of a major coffee company explained the future of coffee customer service. Charlie, what do we need to know? Well, John, I start by with, a, with a disclaimer here. I'm not a coffee drinker, but I still found this story fascinating. So how do you improve on making coffee? You'd think that this is an area where most of what can be done has been done, but don't tell that to the CEO of this company in Israel. Her goal is to improve customer service. Their company started a pilot program in Tel Aviv in partnership with a company called One M Robotics to set up a logistics center to make coffee deliveries to all customers in the Tel Aviv area within 90 minutes. You don't need to go to the coffee bar, it will come to you. Uh, next year, they're also planning to launch new types of lifestyle coffees like coffee with vitamins or stronger coffee or coffee capsules that produce coffee more similar to filter coffee, which better matches Israeli tastes. They're also working on becoming more ecologically focused. They're developing biodegradable pods or capsules, and they partnered with a company that's manufacturing shoes from recycled coffee grounds. The CEO believes people care about companies that do good and that also focus on wellness, and she's pushing her company to do both. Coffee has moved from a hot black liquid in a cup to a social experience, but this CEO now wants to take coffee to the next level by partnering with the customers themselves to provide the best coffee drinking experience possible. And frankly, I'm a bit envious since, John, you know, I can't even get Coca-Cola to bring back my personal favorite, <laughs> Diet Coke with lime. Mine too. Well, Charlie, I'm still thinking, though, about gym shoes made of uh, coffee grounds. I mean, does that mean if you're running faster, you're, you're fully caffeinated? I, I, I'm, you know, what to figure that out. Yeah, or you're, or you're gaining grounds, maybe. I don't know. It's a, <laughs> it sure, sure is interesting. All right. Well, moving from coffee to medicine, an Israeli medical research team at Rambam Hospital designed a special algorithm that can predict heart failure in muscle inflammation patients. Now, how does this work? Uh, myositis is a muscle inflammation that can elevate the risk of heart failure. Uh, this team from Rambam Hospital built an artificial intelligence tool that analyzes ECG tests to predict heart failure with an 80% degree of accuracy weeks before it happens. The program analyzes heart patterns that are unique to those with myositis, 
allowing doctors to predict heart failure cases among those with the disease. The study ran the algorithm on the ECGs of patients with myositis and then compared the algorithm's predictions with medical records to see who actually ended up suffering with heart failure. The model was able to spot tiny details in the ECG that doctors can't normally detect. This study was conducted together with researchers in the cardiology department of the Mayo Clinic. The model itself hasn't yet been deployed in clinics, but that's their final goal. They hope to use this artificial intelligence model to enable doctors to spot problems at an early stage before the actual deterioration of the patient's medical condition. Myositis is a relatively rare condition, but hopefully this new treatment will allow doctors to identify those at risk of heart failure in time to make a positive impact in the patient's life. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. We're looking at current insights into technology coming out of Amazing Israel. Now, if you've ever purchased something online and then had the company offer other maybe bizarre suggestions of things you might also want to purchase, you've probably experienced some of the limitations of artificial intelligence. An individual from the Israel Institute of Technology at the Technion predicts that smarter artificial intelligence might be on the way. But is this a good thing or a bad thing? you got to wonder, Charlie. Yeah, and the answer is actually somewhere in the middle. You know, in spite of all the hype, current artificial intelligence programs have severe limitations. Online chatbots can answer some questions, but if you've ever tried to use one to answer a very specific question, you can quickly become very frustrated. Now, the individual who wrote this article in the Jerusalem Post labeled the problem software autism. And by that, he was referring to current artificial intelligence programs and their lack of social abilities. They're designed to work with humans, but they don't always do that well. And they have no real ability to communicate with other software that's not specifically designed for them. Now, he suggests we're now in the early stages of developing software sociability, he calls it, with the development of software that uses natural language to communicate. Now, once the software is further refined, he believes computers will be able to replace entire departments in an organization and be able to handle things like back office sales analysis, sales calls, requests for proposals, automatic billing and finance, and even managing cloud services. He even believes artificial general intelligence will be developed that will be equal to or exceed human intelligence, replacing the typical office manager. Now, in one sense, I found his predictions disturbing. Uh, they brought to mind that scene from 2001, A Space Odyssey, where Hal, the computer, refuses to allow the astronaut back into the spaceship. Yeah, I'm sorry, Dave, I just can't do that. But on the other hand, John, I ended up not being too worried. Uh, one hypothesis on systems and complexity states that a working system will eventually collapse due to unimaginable complexity. Yeah, think how many computer updates you receive for just one standalone software program on your computer or smartphone and then multiply that by a billion times the level of complexity of large systems all trying to integrate with one another. A single error within one of the programs could cause the entire system to crash. Or to put it another way, artificial intelligence is being developed by human intelligence. And let's face it, we're just not that smart. <laughs> well said. Well, your final report also from the Jerusalem Post seems to illustrate that uh, last point. What does our push to transition to a green economy have to do with an impending sulfur crisis? Yeah, this is another way to explore how complex systems function, and it's to look at the, the law of unintended consequences. 
Now, for something to work properly, we need to explore not only what we're designing and how it will work, but also all possible outcomes of moving to that new system. Now, here's the gist of the article. In our push to eliminate fossil fuels, we haven't taken into consideration the reality that 80% of the world's sulfur used industrially is derived from fossil fuels, mainly from oil and natural gas. The sulfur is removed from the fuels during refining. It's converted into sulfuric acid, which is then used to make things like fertilizer and antifreeze. It's also used in the production of cobalt for electric batteries, and it has a vast host of other essential uses. Hmm. By 2040, the world is predicted to have a shortage of sulfuric acid. And should we reduce oil and gas production, that shortfall will skyrocket. So what industry will get access to the dwindling supply? Allocate it to technology to produce batteries, and we could have a worldwide food crisis without fertilizer. Allocate it to fertilizer production, and we could have a shortage of batteries to power electric vehicles. Mine for it, and we cause additional environmental damage. Now, that's the law of unintended consequences, and there are other examples. Some are suggesting we save on gas by having people live in more densely populated cities. But what happens to such cities when an earthquake hits, like the one in Turkey? Or when an enemy launches a missile attack, like Russia's doing against Ukraine? Uh, the bottom line is that wisdom begins when we realize we're not God. We don't know the end from the beginning. As someone once said, hubris, excessive pride or self-confidence, is to think that the way we see things is everything there is to see. Now, the article is a good reminder to approach technology and change with caution and to seek God's wisdom before assuming our own wisdom is sufficient. Charlie, this is a great collection of stories, but it takes me to the scripture. You know, since so many of these emerging technologies are either invented or developed in Israel, I have to wonder, is that part of maybe what God said when he said, I will bless those who bless you? I mean, and, and then he says, in you, all the world will be blessed. Well, obviously, the ultimate blessing is Jesus, our Messiah, who comes from the Jewish people. But I wonder, is some of this technology part of that? Am I reaching too far? No, I don't believe you're reaching too far at all, John. I think that uh, God has uh, used the uh, Jewish people in uh, many ways over, over history to bless us, and technology has been one of the key areas where we've seen uh, their innovation, their expertise uh, being used in ways that we could never have imagined. It is a blessing, and we thank God for them. We welcome you to visit our website, thelandandthebook.org, for all kinds of great links, including a link for today's guest, a medical doctor who helps us better understand the price Jesus paid for our redemption. We'll talk about the agony of Jesus next, right here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Crucifixion, it's at the heart of the Easter story. But how much do we really know about it? Many of us have heard stories since we were in Sunday school, but what if we could look at the death of Jesus through the eyes of a physician? We're about to do just that. Welcome to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and right now, let's you and I pause for a quick idea on showing the love of Jesus to a Jewish friend or neighbor. So you're good enough friends with your Jewish friend that you can talk deeper spiritual issues like Isaiah 53. How should we respond when a Jewish friend says, well, you know, Isaiah 53 refers to Israel, not the Messiah. Wes Tabor is with Life in Messiah. How should we respond, Wes? John, I think it's helpful to know what informs our friend's thinking before we respond. So <laughs> we're scratching where they itch. Mm. Our goal is to focus on the text. 
May I ask what leads you to believe that Israel is in view in this passage is a good question. Who is the our in this context? For example, our report in verse 1 or our griefs and sorrow in verse 4. Who's included in all of us like sheep have gone astray? Verse 6. Who are the my people of verse 8? So asking clarifying questions regarding the description of the servant also helps. Has national Israel been cut off from the land of the living as described in verse 8 and 12? And in what sense is Israel smitten of God in verse 4 or crushed by God in verse 10? And Isaiah 53 clearly points to someone who makes atonement for sin. Yeah, verses 5 and 6 clearly speak of our transgressions and iniquities being the cause of the servant's suffering. Verse 10 says the servant is a guilt offering, a reference to the Levitical blood sacrifice of animals. The result of the righteous one bearing our iniquities is our being made righteous. Verse 11. Pointers to Messiah are also found throughout the Old Testament. Wow, you've covered a lot of ground and appreciate your thoughts there. Wes Tabor with Life in Messiah. Dr. Shan Young is a certified member of the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology. His private practice is in Calhoun County, Alabama. We had the privilege of traveling together with Dr. Young on one of our previous Holy Land tours. Shan is married to Cynthia, and the couple has six children, 13 grandchildren. Dr. Young joins us today for a conversation centered around his book titled Crushed, A Physician Analyzes the Agony of Jesus. Hey, it's great to uh, reconnect with you again, Shan. It's great to hear from you again, too. Well, let me just ask at the beginning here, what made you want to dig into this research? I mean, it's certainly not a fun project by any means. Well, my curiosity began as a teenager after I became a Christian, wanting to know why uh, Jesus had to die by crucifixion, why not by some other means. And so I began researching it uh, even before I became a physician. But once I became a physician and saw just the details of the crucifixion and, and what Jesus was willing to go through in, in my place, it made me come to appreciate him uh, even more. And so, you know, the very word uh, excruciating, you know, comes from the term out of the cross. And so if you think the worst pain possible, Jesus suffered that for me. And that just put volumes to me as, as a believer. And I wanted to share that with other people. You know, some might say, isn't it enough to just leave it at Jesus suffered a lot? I mean, why go to such detail as you have here? Well, I think a lot of people, you know, just uh, Easter's become more of a, a secular you know, holiday, and people don't take um, the crucifixion seriously. I think people, you know, wear crosses, they have tattoos with crosses on them, and they don't even know what is involved with that. So, again, for me, is I came to understand uh, just how severe crucifixion was and what Christ was willing to go through in my place. It made me come to appreciate just how much uh, my Savior loved me and what he was willing to go through. Um, And then not only that, but just to show how God was sovereign of the whole thing. Because if you understand medically what happened at each aspect of Christ's passion, it's all foreshadowed or prophesied from Genesis all the way to, to Malachi in the Old Testament. Well, you make a great point there. And as you say, there were many, many details, and every single one of them pointed to in the Old Testament. And that itself offers a reassuring word for you and I, I think. We're talking with Shan Young, who's written Crushed, a physician analyzes the agony of Jesus. What do you think the average non-medical person misses about the crucifixion experience of Jesus? 
Well, I think one thing that kind of gets glossed over by most people is, you know, what impact the bloody sweat had in the point of passion. Um, when Christ uh, was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and he began to sweat drops of blood, uh, Luke, as a physician, is the only one of the gospel writers to record it. And I think he had an interest in it for that reason. But what that condition does to a person's body is that it preconditioned his body for the passion that was about to go through. And it compromises the skin to where it becomes hypersensitive, like somebody who's uh, sunburned. Mm -hmm. So as painful as a scourging would be for a normal person, and we know scourging was a very severe thing. Uh, Josephus and others wrote about how bones were exposed when people were scourged. Uh, People were disemboweled sometimes by the depth of the cuts with the scourge. And here is Christ who's undergoing that torment, and it's going to be more severe for him. I think Jeremiah said in Lamentations, is there any pain like my pain? And so mm. I think the skin being uh, very sensitized, hypersensitive to pain, uh, undergoing the scourge, that's one thing. The other thing that the bloody sweat did to the body, it preconditioned the body again because it made the skin more fragile. It's almost like a meat tenderizer. So when Christ went through the passion. Uh, he had deeper cuts than normally would be there from a scourge. He had more blood loss because of that, and that's why he was unable to carry his cross like the other two thieves were probably able to carry theirs. He was not able to carry his mm. because he lost so much blood from the bloodletting that occurred with it. Yeah. A detailed account of the medical aspects of crucifixion. We're talking with Dr. Shan Young today on The Land on the Book. It's impossible, I think, to look at any aspect of the crucifixion of Christ and not wince anything that had to do with the passion. But if you had to, what would you identify as uh, two or three most agonizing moments for Jesus? What would you identify as one of them? Well, I'm, I'm going to start from the third up and go that way if All I right. can. Sure. Uh, again, going back to the bloody sweat, um, John MacArthur writes in his commentary on Mark 14, for example, that it says, the Gospels tell us that Jesus was so powerful even to the point of death. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, the burden that he was bearing in the Garden of Gethsemane was so severe that he was to the point of death Mm. at the Garden of Gethsemane. And then if you come to the scourge, that would be the second thing. Again, you know, his scourge would be more severe than the most scourges would be simply because he's he's suffered this precondition prior to the scourging. And so, you know, we know the effects of it for him were severe enough that Isaiah 52 prophesied that he would be more marred than any man. Um, So he didn't even look human at the end of the scourging process. For somebody who is maybe less familiar with the story or thought they understood it but didn't, define the uh, scourging process as best you can. I know you do so in the book. Right. So uh, typically there was a Jewish scourge, which was limited to 39 lashes by the Pharisees. The law was 40, but they would limit it 39 because they didn't want to break the law in a moment of zeal. So um, it was a less severe scourge. It was considered a lesser scourge, and they would use a whip to do it. Now, the Romans kind of perfected it, and they did have an unlimited number of lashes with the Roman scourge. And the Romans would use a multi-thonged whip, sometimes anywhere from three to nine thongs. The thongs would have uh, metal balls, uh, metal pellets, Uh, shards of glass or sharp animal bones embedded into the thongs. So as a person is scourged, the leather strap would wrap around the skin and then the metal pellets and the sharp uh, glass would then dig deeper into the skin. So as the whip is withdrawn by the person doing the whipping, 
it would rip open any skin or muscle underneath. And so historical writers who witnessed scourging, not necessarily non-biblical writers, describe like people having like uh, ribbons of quivering flesh, uh, muscles being torn open and, mm. and ripped open from that mm. scourging process. And so we know in Jesus' case, he was scourged by the Romans, and so it would have been an unlimited number of lashes. Uh, theologians uh, believe that, you know, the Romans had a thing called a near-death scourge, and they think that the pilot's intent was to bring him as close to death as possible without actually killing him, and so his scourging would have been more severe than the scourging, say, for the other two criminals that were crucified with him. And then I think the most agonizing part of the cross would have been when he cried out, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so crucifixion, you know, people, the whole time they're on the cross, their muscles begin to develop titanic contractions. So every muscle in the body begins to cramp up. If you've ever had a leg cramp, if you can imagine every muscle in your body is cramping. If you're a woman in labor, her stomach cramps, you know, having a baby, if you can imagine what that's like, but then compound it with every muscle in your body cramping at the same time. That's what would happen at crucifixion, and it gets to a point where even you can't breathe because even the respiratory muscles begin to cramp, and, and so you have difficulty breathing, so they would have to pull themselves up and struggle on the cross hmm. to be able to breathe. And so, you know, Christ got to the point where, you know, at the very end, you know, when he cried out to God, it wasn't the physical suffering, I think, so much as the spiritual and emotional agony that God looked down upon him, and he could no longer look upon his son as the sin-bearer because he bore the sin of all of us. And I think that's the most agonizing point of the crucifixion for him. Not an easy conversation to have today on The Land and the Book, but an important one. A physician analyzes the agony of Jesus. I'm John Gager, joined by Dr. Shan Young, a gynecologist. He's written the book, Crushed, A Physician Analyzes the Agony of Jesus. You're a doctor. You're used to seeing blood. But honestly, did your research on this ever make you weak at the knees? If so, what was that moment for you? Jesus suffered this torment and that torment and that torment and that torment, and it all kind of compounded. And and the thing that is hardest for me is to know that he was willing to do that for me. Yes. Wow. And that, that, that was the toughest part. You know, what was a a typical amount of time that someone would spend on a cross? The biblical account implies almost surprise from the Romans that Jesus was already dead. So what's more typical? So going back over non-biblical accounts, um, the longest somebody that we know of stayed on the cross was 12 days. Hmm. More typical was four to five days, but typically that was in people who were not scourged or tortured prior to the crucifixion. They Mm -hmm. were just crucified and that was it. In Jesus' case, because he bled out so much blood from the scourging process, you know, it appears that he probably lost like eight pints of blood, so mm. he was already hypovolemic by the time he got to the cross, and that's why they had to carry him the final way. And that's why he died more suddenly, was because he had that. But, mm. you know, the other thing to realize is that Jesus died when Jesus chose to die. When yes. he, he chose the time. His life was not taken from him. He He surrendered his life, and so that's why he died more suddenly, and that's why people were surprised by it. This question is a bit off topic, but given the repeated exposure to screams of pain and agony, how did Roman executioners live normal lives? I mean, how did they sleep at night? You you, you couldn't really discuss your day at work over dinner. Well, I think, you know, suffering uh, in the world is to a point that some people 
you know, just become desensitized to it. I think we see that in our society today where people have gotten desensitized to violence because we see it on the news all the time. I think they became desensitized to it. You see it among soldiers in, in war who become desensitized to it. I see it in, in our profession. Uh, people who I know when they first started performing abortions, I, I personally pro life, I don't do abortions, but I know some of my colleagues do abortions. They struggle really hard to do it, but eventually they did it so long they became desensitized to seeing you know, pieces of a uh, fetal body coming out and that difficulty. I just think people become so desensitized to what they see and what they hear that they lose their ability to have compassion for someone in that situation. Shan, how can we turn this difficult conversation into a deeper love for our Savior rather than a, a surface discussion of, of the macabre? I want you to think this is the Savior that I want to, to have in my life. Uh, I think we have to realize that God loves us enough that He sent His Son to die for us. And that's you know how I focus on it. If He's willing to suffer that much for me, that's how much he loves me and willing to die for me. And then as I live my life, I want to do everything I can to um, honor and glorify him. I don't want to bring him any dishonor because of what he's done for me. That's Dr. Shan Young, a physician analyzing the agony of Jesus. We've got a link to his book at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Well, thank you for doing a very difficult thing, and that's walk with us through this conversation today. An important one to have, though, Appreciate your expertise and your willingness to lend some of that to us today, Shan. Well, thank you, John. And enjoyed hearing from you again. All right. Well, you have a blessed day, and we're going to look forward to a conversation with Charlie Dyer next. He joins us to address some of the latest questions that have come into us. I'm looking forward to that next here on The Land and the Book. Well, I don't know whether April showers are happening in your neck of the woods, but if they are, thank God for the Mayflower still to come. Whatever the weather, we'll weather the weather, whatever the weather may be, right? John Geiger here with you on The Land of the Book. Charlie, I have no idea where that introduction for this segment came from, but it just did. (laughs) Well, it sounded good, John. (laughs) What sounds even better is getting to the uh, questions from our listeners, and, and I have one of my own. What is the next event on God's prophetic timeline? I mean, Why is it important, and what does it mean for you? Well, if you're wondering like I am, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a really cool, very free ebook that addresses this issue. What's it called, Charlie? Well, it's called The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, and it's an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Now, receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org and then click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up. And when you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. All right, let's get into our stack of questions. This one from Marilyn, who traveled with us to Israel back in 2014. She says, I'd like to know if the Temple Institute is still actively preparing ritual implements as well as trumpets, lyres, and priestly vestments for use in the next temple when it is rebuilt. Are any of these items on display for the public? Well, the Temple Mount Faithful are still working to prepare the implements and vestments for the third temple. And the Temple Institute's the actual group that has those items on display, and they are still on display in the Jewish quarter of the old city. 
There are also other organizations that have arisen to push for the construction of the temple. Uh, one of those can be found online. In fact, if people want to check out www.thirdtemple.org, it's a relatively small group, but the numbers are growing, and uh, they are dead serious about uh, preparing that temple. Charlie, you know, we've had a number of questions about the temple being rebuilt and so on. Uh, from a Muslim perspective, does this kind of rock their world, get them upset, or do they just dismiss all of it as nonsense? They are very upset. Uh, and when the Jews go to pray on the Temple Mount, uh, they get uh, spun out of shape. Uh, in fact, there have been riots when uh, rumors have persisted that the Jews are going to set up the altar to offer sacrifices on the Temple Mount. So it is very serious from the Muslim perspective. Mark has a question about Genesis 47, verse 9. After Pharaoh had asked how many are the years of his life, Jacob replied, 130 years. Few and evil have been the days and years of my life. And it sounds like Jacob is saying that he has had a short, bad life, although God has assured him that the covenant would be extended through him and his seed. He was also blessed with worldly abundance. Maybe I misunderstand few and evil, but help me understand this passage. Yeah, I actually understand Jacob's answer there in a slightly different way. You know, he referred to his life as short, saying his years are few, even though he'd already lived 130 years. And we know he still had more years to go since he was 147 when he died. While that seems quite long to us, I suspect he was comparing his life to that of his ancestors. Abraham had lived 175 years. Isaac had lived 180. You know, when compared to them, his life might have indeed seemed short. The second word he used there that sometimes translated evil, but it also has the idea of, of bad or difficult or unpleasant or unhappy. I tend to think Jacob was looking back on his life and all the unpleasant and unhappy experiences he endured. He was forced to leave his father and mother to avoid being killed by Esau. He was tricked and mistreated by his uncle Laban. His family life, you know, with two wives and two concubines was definitely dysfunctional. His mother died before he was ever able to return home to see her again. And he thought for years his favorite son had been killed by wild animals. So in many ways, he did live a difficult and unhappy life. Anyway, I think Jacob was something of an Eeyore, and that can be seen in his response. But it's true that he hadn't lived as long as his ancestors and that he had apparently experienced more than his share of, of uh, interpersonal struggles and hardships. And that's what I think he was sharing with Pharaoh in that moment of reflective honesty on his part. Tirza takes us to Job 2, verse 13. What do you think Job's friends must have been doing to survive seven days and seven nights with Job as they sat there with him? Yeah, that verse describes the, the one and only right thing I think the friends did for Job in the entire book. You know, to understand that verse, we need to look at it in the context though, of, of visiting someone in intense suffering and pain today. You know, our presence speaks more eloquently than any words we might say. And, and when those friends kept quiet and just sat there, they were ministering to Job. It's when they opened their mouths that the problems came. Now, in terms of what they were doing, though, to survive, I, I don't believe they only sat there for seven days without eating or sleeping. Instead, I, I see this in the context of someone today visiting with a friend who's in mourning or someone who's in the hospital. Likely the friends sat with Job day and night, though. Occasionally, one would slip away to take nourishment or to relieve himself. Uh, but they stayed by Job's side throughout the time. When Job fell asleep, they likely did as well. And when Job was awake, they tried to be awake should he need something or want to say something. It's as if someone today were to say, when I was ill, they were by my side all the time. And by that, we mean they were constantly there with some brief exceptions. Now, sadly, the help of the friends vanished when they finally did open their mouths to offer their advice. And sometimes I think that's why the best thing we can do is to say nothing, but simply be there. 
Great wisdom here on The Land and the Book from our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. It's always fun to read your questions. And you can email yours to us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Fred asks, did the blood of Christ come from Mary or from God? Can you include biblical references, please? Yeah, and I'm going to walk my way around this one. Uh, I start with Paul's words in Acts 20, 28. You know, he told the elders of Ephesus there, uh, they were to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Uh, Jesus was fully God and fully man. Now, in his pre-incarnate state as God, Jesus didn't have blood because in eternity past, he wasn't in human flesh. But at the incarnation, Jesus assumed a human body. As Gabriel said to Mary, you know, back in Luke chapter 1, he says, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son. And when Mary asked how that would happen since she'd never had sexual relations, Gabriel responded, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, in light of all that, here's the best answer I can give. Jesus's blood came from the perfect human body that was formed in Mary's womb. But that human body was fully God and fully man. John 1 verses 1 and 14 say it this way, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, I'm not sure if I can provide a more detailed explanation beyond what God has said in in this regard in his word, but it was Jesus's blood from that human body that was also the product of the Holy Spirit and Mary. Janice asks, can you please explain the connection of Ishmael to present Arabs? Do we know the descendants of his 12 sons who are named in the Bible? Uh, The tribes from Ishmael and the land they inhabited are listed in Genesis 25. Uh, The area they settled curves from the Sinai Peninsula east of Egypt up the east side of the Rift Valley toward Assyria. Uh, It also includes the Arabian Peninsula. Now, these descendants became the tribes we tend to think of today as the Bedouin. In fact, Ishmael's eldest son was Nebaiot, whose name is preserved in the name of the Nabataeans, who eventually settled in the region of Petra. Now, what makes it more difficult is that the descendants of Esau also settled in some of this region, especially to the south and east of Israel proper. Genesis 36 provides the history of Esau's wives and descendants, and it includes Esau's marriage to the daughter of Ishmael and sister of Nebaiot. So, Esau's descendants and those of Ishmael had some overlap through intermarriage. Finally, it gets even more complex with the Arab conquest of the Middle East during and after the time of Muhammad. Following the Arab conquest, Arabic became the dominant language in the region, and as a result, many call everyone who speaks Arabic, Arab, even though ethnically they're not descendants of either Ishmael or Esau. Hmm. For example, today Egyptians are considered Arabs, along with those from Lebanon and Iraq and a host of other countries where Arabic's the dominant language. But the true ethnic descendants of Ishmael are more properly associated with the Bedouin who lived in what's today Jordan and Saudi Arabia and those immediate surrounding areas. Interesting question, and we appreciate yours. Email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Bart says, I was reading through Ezra, thinking about possible connections with characters in other books. Is King Xerxes in the book of Esther, the same king mentioned in Ezra 4 verse 6? Is King Darius in Daniel 6, the same king mentioned in Ezekiel 4, verse 24? I'm wondering if King Xerxes' apparent lack of concern about the Jews rebuilding the temple and King Darius' support of the rebuilding may have been positively influenced by Esther and Daniel, respectively. Can you help here? Uh, What we know is the king identified as Xerxes in Ezra 4, 6 in the NIV is called Ahasuerus in the New American Standard and the ESV in the King James Version. 
Xerxes is the Greek form of his name. Uh, the Hebrew form was Ahasuerus. So sometimes there's even confusion on the name, but they refer to the same person. But whatever name's used in the Bible translation, the king in the book of Esther is the same individual as the one in Ezra 4.6. Thank you, Charlie. Love those questions, and you're going to love Charlie's devotional. It's next on The Land and the Book. It's Easter weekend, and I'm John Geiger, joined by Charlie Dyer here at The Land of the Book. I think, Charlie, it's possible that Easter weekend brings a question to mind. Why do we go to church on Sunday rather than maybe Saturday or some other day of the week? It's my understanding you uh, intend to address that in your devotional coming up? I do, John. All right, we're going to look forward to that. But first, this thought from an Israel traveler who wants to share from their own Holy Land experience. So you're good enough friends with your Jewish friend that you can talk deeper spiritual issues like Isaiah 53. How should we respond when a Jewish friend says, well, you know, Isaiah 53 refers to Israel, not the Messiah. Wes Tabor is with Life in Messiah. How should we respond, Wes? John, I think it's helpful to know what informs our friend's thinking before we respond. So (laughs) we're scratching where they itch. Mm. Our goal is to focus on the text. May I ask what leads you to believe that Israel is in view in this passage is a good question. Who is the our in this context? For example, our report in verse 1 or our griefs and sorrow in verse 4. Who's included in all of us like sheep have gone astray? Verse 6. Who are the my people of verse 8? So asking clarifying questions regarding the description of the servant also helps. Has national Israel been cut off from the land of the living as described in verse 8 and 12? And in what sense is Israel smitten of God in verse 4 or crushed by God in verse 10? And Isaiah 53 clearly points to someone who makes atonement for sin. Yeah, verses 5 and 6 clearly speak of our transgressions and iniquities being the cause of the servant's suffering. Verse 10 says the servant is a guilt offering, a reference to the Levitical blood sacrifice of animals. The result of the righteous one bearing our iniquities is our being made righteous. Verse 11. Pointers to Messiah are also found throughout the Old Testament. Wow, you've covered a lot of ground, and appreciate your thoughts there. Wes Tabor with Life in Messiah. All right, I'm looking forward to this uh, answer to the question, why do we go to church on Sunday rather than some other day of the week? So, Charlie, I'll get out of the way and let you share today's devotional. Uh, thanks. And, and as you said, this weekend is Easter. It's Resurrection Sunday, uh, the day we celebrate Jesus rising from the dead. And to do that, follow me as we head to the Garden Tomb, just to the north of Damascus Gate in Jerusalem. Now, whether or not this is the actual location of Jesus's crucifixion and burial and resurrection isn't important. We don't worship the tomb. We worship the one who died for our sins and then rose from the dead. And the Garden Tomb is a wonderful spot to remember those life-changing events. Once you're inside, you sense an immediate change. The busy streets with the cars and peddlers and crowded sidewalks fade into the background. They're replaced by trees and shrubs and flowers, lovingly tended by the staff here. And off to our left, we see down toward a slice of bedrock with a tomb carved into its face in front of a plaza. Follow me down the stairs and then take a seat along the garden wall as we pause to reflect on this site and this weekend. I want to focus on two topics this morning. The first is absolutely essential, while the second is important, but not as crucial to our faith. The first is something we should all agree on. 
while the second has caused good and godly followers of Jesus to disagree, sometimes quite forcefully. So please follow along carefully. The first issue is the importance of the resurrection. The fact that Jesus died for our sin and then rose from the dead is the core of the gospel message. Paul made this abundantly clear in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me also. The gospel as preached by Paul had two essential elements, that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose again from the dead. And Paul provided two pieces of evidence for each. First, he said these truths took place according to the scriptures. God had predicted both events in advance to help validate them when they took place. And second, Paul said both truths were seen by eyewitnesses. How did they know Christ died? because his death was seen by those standing around the cross, validated by the Roman soldiers, and then testified by his body being placed into a tomb with a stone rolled over the opening, sealed, and guarded by other Roman soldiers. And how did they know Christ rose from the dead? Because the resurrected Jesus was physically seen by hundreds of eyewitnesses, most of whom were still alive as Paul penned this letter. No matter what denomination or church you're associated with, the bedrock of your faith has to be the reality that Jesus died for your sins and then rose from the dead to demonstrate his power over death itself, the very penalty for sin placed on humanity back in the Garden of Eden. That's what makes Easter Sunday so special. But while we're sitting here staring at this empty tomb, let me focus on the second issue, one that's not as essential but that still divides many believers. As we gather throughout the year to study God's Word and worship, what day of the week are we to gather? The fact that many have written into the program asking this very question over the past decade tells me this is a concern. So follow along and please listen carefully. The fourth of the Ten Commandments begins, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. The Sabbath day, which is Saturday, was created by the Lord as a day of rest. Now here's the question. If Saturday is the day of rest, why do most churches worship on Sunday? Some try to solve the problem by simply calling Sunday the Sabbath. But in reality, it's not. The Sabbath was the seventh day of creation. Sunday is the first day of creation, the first day of the week. So should we be worshiping on Saturday or on Sunday? Now, I chose this spot where we're sitting as a visual illustration to help explain why the early church switched from Saturday to Sunday for its day of worship. The church began meeting on Sunday because that was the day Jesus rose from the dead. All four gospel writers go out of their way to stress this fact. In Matthew 28, 1, Matthew says the resurrection took place after the Sabbath at the dawn on the first day of the week. Mark agrees. In 16, 1 and 2, he says the Sabbath was over and it was very early on the first day of the week. In Luke 24, verse 1, this physician historian writes, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, and not to be outdone, John writes in chapter 20, verse 1, 
early on the first day of the week while it was still dark. Christ's resurrection changed the focus for when God's followers gathered to worship. In Acts chapter 20, verse 6, Paul went to Troas and was there seven days. But then in verse 7, it says, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. That is, Paul was there on Saturday, the Sabbath, but that wasn't the day the church gathered. They gathered instead on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. In 1 Corinthians 16, 2, Paul talks about the collection being taken up in the church for the saints in Jerusalem, and he says it's to be presented on the first day of every week. The saints in Corinth were gathered on Sunday, not Saturday. But what does this change do to the Sabbath? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote to the church in Colossae and said specifically that the Sabbath, along with several other Jewish laws, were mere shadows of what was to come. Here's what he said in Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink, that is the Jewish dietary laws, or in respect to a festival or a new moon, a Jewish ritual days, or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul is saying these regulations were given to point the Old Testament saints toward the Messiah. But now that the Messiah has come, the regulations aren't necessary for the present age. The empty tomb changed everything. But does this mean that those who choose to worship on Saturday ought to be criticized or judged? No. And let me share one more passage to explain why. In Romans 14, Paul addressed those in the church at Rome who were divided on what to eat and when to worship. Here's his response. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. And Paul then ends by saying, You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Easter Sunday is the day most believers gather to remember the reality that Jesus rose from the dead. And yet some still choose to worship on Saturday. But the most important lesson we must all remember is that we're gathering not to condemn others, but to worship our Lord and Savior. Keeping our eyes fixed on Him will help keep us from criticizing others. See that tomb in front of us? It's empty. And that's what's important. Boy, great explanation. Thank you, Charlie. And for somebody listening now who would like to talk with a friend about knowing Jesus personally forever, you can call this toll-free number. I'll give you 888-NEED-HIM. 888 and the numbers that spell out need him. Boy, I use that expression toll-free. Who cares anymore with cell phones, right? But uh, give them a call right now if you don't know for sure, for sure that you're forgiven, that you're headed for heaven. 888-NEED-HIM. Well, we thank you for listening to our program today. I invite you back next week for another edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Have a great day. 